You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you a five-part series of messages on life that Stephen Olford presented at Moody Keswick Bible Conference, 1984. Stephen Olford was a pastor, author, international evangelist, and a pioneer Christian broadcaster with his TV program, Encounter. Now, here is Stephen Olford on Today in the Word radio. I am dealing with a series of studies in an unusual section on the Sermon on the Mount, or in the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm calling it Freedom Laws for Kingdom Life. Freedom Laws for Kingdom Life. And yesterday we introduced the series and talked about life's priority. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also in context. This morning our theme is Freedom Laws For kingdom life, life's anxiety has got a word to say to us about those storms and times of privation and anxiety and worry when God in his graciousness bends down with his rainbow of promises to meet our need. We're dealing with a very, very important subject this morning, especially with this group here, life's anxiety. And so we'll read together from verse 25 of chapter 6 of Matthew. I'll read it this morning. Tomorrow we'll share it. It's a little shorter, but let me read this. Therefore I say unto you, be not anxious, or more accurately, over-anxious, over-anxious for your life, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on, Is not the life more than food, and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you, by taking anxious care, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why are ye anxious for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you, that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, Shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore, be not anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or with what shall we be clothed? For after these things do the Gentiles seek. Underscore that word, seek. Because Jesus picks it right up and throws it back at you and me. The Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of these things. Now then, listen. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. Be therefore not anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow 
will take care of itself? Therefore, be not anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. One of the most astounding and important statements our Lord ever made. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Now let's get down to our study. Let me start off by just quoting something. I clipped from Time magazine in 1961. And the situation is worse today. Time magazine published a cover story on anxiety in America. And it stated that the breakdown of faith in God coupled with the accelerated pace of high tension of modern living have produced intense anxiety in millions of people in our land today. The article went on to say that, quote, worry is one of the most widespread and debilitating ailments of our time. And experts all agree across the country that is far worse today, in this very hour. My good friend, Dr. Quinton Hyder, psychiatrist, and my colleague at Calvary Baptist Church for many years, appearing on our television program every week, who wrote the little book, the Christian Hat Book to Psychiatry, How to Live with People. He quotes an author who says this, that the central neurosis of our time is anxiety. A theologian and a philosopher of the 19th century put it this way, no grand inquisitor has in readiness such terrible tortures as anxiety. Little wonder then that our Lord Jesus Christ addressed this age-long problem. It was true in his day, it's true in our day. And with the speed and movement and mobility and pressures of our technological age, I want to tell you, anxiety is one of the greatest problems I meet all across our land. Now, I spoke the other day about our youth and particularly the rash of suicides under 17 years of age in New Jersey and Dallas just recently because of lack of purpose. But underneath it all, again, is this gnawing, eroding anxiety. Are you suffering from anxiety this morning? Before we get into exegesis, I want to, in all fairness, make a distinction between what we call normal anxiety and what is chronic or neurotic anxiety. There is a sense in which normal anxiety is rooted in the spiritual nature of man. It involves his capacity for creative aspiration, moral decision, the experience of guilt, and even anticipation of death in the proper way. Normal anxiety is the tension between freedom and finiteness. Freedom and finiteness. It has creative as well as destructive potential. It can be destructive, but it needn't be. It can be creative. 
The Bible teaches us that creative anxiety is the right sense of responsibility in all the areas of our life down here. The Bible also teaches us, and I've documented it here with verses, that it gives us the right sense of countability in all the areas in relation to eternity. So there is such a thing as normal anxiety. But our concern this morning mainly is on this over-anxiety, this neurotic anxiety which is destructive. It results, of course, from a lack of distrust, a lack of trust, rather, in our Father God, and, of course, disharmony with our fellow man. It's a state of mind which doesn't muster the courage to make decisions and, as a result, drives us into anxiety. Anxiety. And right here in context, the Lord Jesus condemns it. The Lord Jesus condemns it. A neurotic worries about everything. I'm in everything. And Jesus condemned this neurotic anxiety. Will you notice verses 25 to 30? He says it's senseless. It's senseless, period. It's senseless. It fails to learn the lessons of nature and history and of the God who controls both doesn't take cognizant of what the birds do and the flowers and the God who takes care of them. It's so senseless. Secondly, it's selfish, verses 31 and 32. It concerns itself with what the psychologists call today meism and selfism. Meism and selfism, the new psychological terms for self-centeredness. In this respect, of course, Christians who are neurotic in their anxiety are no better than heathens, so Jesus said. And then, of course, most seriously of all, it's sinful. It's sinful. Look at verses 33 and 34. It's sinful. It dethrones God and destroys faith. For the Bible says, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Well, with that preamble, let's get right down to a piece of exegesis now on this passage. We do well, then, to examine what our Lord Jesus meant by life's anxiety. What are freedom laws in the kingdom in which we be born again? What are freedom laws for life's anxiety? Here's number one. Analyze the cause of anxiety. Let's do it right here this morning. Analyze the cause of anxiety. Jesus said, do not worry about your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink or what you shall put on. Do not worry about tomorrow. The Lord Jesus informs us in these verses that life's anxiety usually arise out of, listen, just ordinary things. But he speaks about two aspects. First, what I'm going to call natural causes of anxiety, and then secondly, spiritual causes of anxiety. Look at the natural causes. Do not worry about your life. These probing words reveal that over-anxiety is just about the trifling things, in many senses, that we're concerned with every day. Guess what they are? Four of them are food, are food, do not worry about what you will eat. 
Food has always been a cause of worry to mankind. Nations are concerned about it. My heart is broken, as I think, of my land of Africa and the famine and privation and distress right now. Thousands and thousands die every week. That's something really to worry about, in a sense. But ultimately, I'm not talking so much about that as your life and my life. Men and women worry about their food. They worship it. They waste it. They want it. Some people think of nothing else and therefore overindulge in it or otherwise, alternatively, alternatively overdiet about it. The Lord Jesus well said, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. When I was pastor of Calvary Baptist Church, I remember a distinguished Bible scholar and teacher dropping on me at noontime without any warning. So I said, it's good to see you, and I thought the best way we could talk would go to a little tiny restaurant, favorite one of mine, very small, confined space, just to eat and chat together. As I was leaving my study with him, he turned back and picked up his attache case. I said, it'll be perfectly safe there. I'll lock the door. No, he said, I've got to bring that with me. So away we went and sat down, and presently the waiter came, and um, I noticed he, he ordered virtually nothing. I ordered a little dish for myself, and then to my utter surprise, and not to say embarrassment, he opened his attache case, and he took out a jar of peanuts and sunflower seeds, and God help us, a whole jar of garlic, and you could smell it all over the place. I could sense the vibes coming from every direction as people I knew appearing at me saying, who is this character you have there? And I learned that day the difference between foods and fads. This man was so obsessed with his diet that he forgot everything about decorum, leave alone dialogue. In fact, all we talked about was food. Jesus said, and this is my version, don't be, don't go overboard with your diet. Food. Do you know we worry about that? Now, don't tell me you don't. I know you do. Not only food, but our clothes. Do not worry about what you shall put on. Now, these words were addressed to people who reckoned their garments as part of their capital. For, in many cases, they expended months and sometimes years in the manufacture of costly garments with all manner of jewels and decorations and other precious materials. So the idea of clothes includes monetary wealth, the furnishings of a home, the comforts of life, how relevant are these words to the cares and sorrows of today? Analyze a normal conversation anywhere you go, even with preachers. And before we get to the Lord Jesus and to the glory of his wonderful person, his indwelling life and the thrill of living for him and witnessing for him and the call for worldwide missions, we're talking about yachts, we're talking about Cadillacs, we're talking about curtains, and carpets and clothes. Heather and I did a trip on the mission field 
a little while ago, and I made it my business to do a survey of the reactions of newcomers to the mission field, those who'd been two or three terms, and the old stages on the mission field. And I have some statistics that are mind-boggling. For one thing, the weakest link in all missionary work today, barring none, is the home pastor. If a pastor hasn't the blood of missions coursing through his being, I'll tell you, the church won't get anywhere. There may be a little lobbying group there who push and push until a missionary conference is put on or eventually tempt the pastor into a missionary visit that changes his life. But by and large, if the pastor isn't mission-oriented, nothing more than the four walls of this church really matter. If I had my way, sir, Dr. McRae, you hear it from me. If I had my way, I wouldn't allow any man to graduate from a Bible college, a seminary, or any other institution without a diploma fully in missiology, as well as Bible. I talked to a young couple and I said, tell me, what is the most disappointing thing you've ever had on the mission field? And of course, there are lots of things that have taken place incompatibility on the field, the pressure of demonic forces, disease, loneliness, culture shock, language, all those kind of things. And the young lady said, the most disappointing thing is that we've been five years on the mission field and I've never had a letter from my pastor. Doesn't that break your heart? I said, what's the most disappointing thing? You had when you went home on furlough, it was second furlough. Worldly mindedness in our local church. And then she recounted with her husband how they went to their best friend's home shortly after arrival. And she said, it was wonderful. We went to the palatial home. It was beautiful, gorgeous, curtains, carpets, the whole thing. We sat at a meal such as I'll never forget. The candles were burning bright, the tables so pretty, the flowers, the meal was delectable, scrumptious. A little prayer was said, and we went into our meal. They talked about cars and carpets and curtains and vacations and everything under the sun. Not once did they ask us about tears and trials or even the triumphs of the mission field. The mission field wasn't mentioned once. We're talking where the rubber touches the road. And just that little word, clothes, what you should put on, covers all that. It was the capital of the Eastern mind. His clothes were his possessions, his wealth, his furnishings. Let's watch it. Talking about anxiety this morning, look at another one, health, health. <laughs> I wonder who would be brave enough to get up and say, I'm not worried about my health. Which of you by worrying can take one cubit or can add one cubit to his stature? And most exegetes maintain that the reference to cubit here is not the height of your body, but the length of your life. I know that's a debatable point. I take the view that it's the length of your life. It's the prolongation of life that's being discussed here. And as you know, everything is being done to prolong life. Medical science 
Ordinary people are obsessed with the problem of health. Have you counted the number of magazines available today just on the promotion of health? People are worried all day and every day as to how to avoid certain diseases, extend their years to a ripe old age, instead of thanking God for the health they're enjoying now and literally, literally helping their health by not worrying about the health. Next one, four, our future. Not just our health, our future. Do not worry about tomorrow. As in the days when Jesus spoke these words, most people were worrying about the tomorrows of life. They spent their time planning, praying, and paying for tomorrow in such a fashion that they couldn't enjoy today. They empty the strength of today with the sorrows of tomorrow and so expend their lives nervously, feverishly, and uselessly. How comprehensive is this analysis? The more we ponder the words, the more apparent it becomes that these are the natural concerns that lead us to anxiety. But more importantly, turn to the spiritual, the spiritual causes. Jesus summed them up when he said, Oh, you of little faith. Oh, you of little faith. And these words reveal the lack of trust in God, that restfulness in a heavenly Father. We hear so much about Jesus today. Blessed, he is the Son of God, center of the universe, the delight of the Father, co-equal of the Father, and the Holy Spirit. We hear so much about the Holy Spirit almost to exaggeration today. But I hear very, very few sermons today about the fatherhood of our God within the context of the regenerate people. Let's look at this. Why? Why do we worry? Number one. Because of failure to trust the God of pre-vision. Put that down. That's a good old Puritan word. Pre-vision. The God of pre-vision. Jesus said, your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. The fowls of the air have no rational forethought. The lilies of the field have no power to plan ahead, yet they have no want. So long as they obey the laws of their kingdoms, God anticipates their every need. In the meantime, you and I, you and I destroy ourselves with corroding care, even though we have a heavenly father who knows. We venture to predict the future events and needs and invariably go wrong simply because we do not trust the God of pre-vision. Pre-vision. In relation to the tomorrows, he knows all about our food, he knows all about our clothes, he knows all about our health, he knows all about our future, and Jesus is sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof, or sufficient for the day in the reference to its own troubles. Whatever problems, evils, or mischief befall each day, God has already anticipated them. Why? Because he's the God of prevision. That's why he could say to the patriarchs things like this, as thy days, what's the rest of it? So shall thy strength be. But not only the God of prevision, there's failure, listen carefully, failure to trust the God of provision. Look at the second phrase. Your heavenly father knows prevision. Second phrase, your heavenly father feeds. 
your heavenly father feeds. Verse 25. And there are numerous passages right throughout the scriptures to support our providing God. He will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. David says, I have been young, now I'm old. Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. Then in the New Testament, we learn that he who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And again, God gives us richly all things to enjoy. He's the God of the birds that neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet they're adequately fed. He's the God of the lilies that neither toil nor spin, yet they're arrayed in garments of glory. He's the God of men and women, and by his activities of creation, preservation, and redemption, he makes them the objects of his special care. Why? Because he's our heavenly father, the God of prevision and provision. But failure to believe that is the cause of anxiety. The cause of anxiety. Oh, you of little faith. But quickly, let's turn to the second law. First, analyze the cause of anxiety. Now, second law. We're talking about freedom laws. Recognize the curse of anxiety. Now, this is going to hit hard. The curse of anxiety. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. And that word rendered evil occurs this only time in this particular gospel. In the epistles, the sense of this word is translated wickedness. And I believe it's a word which the Lord specifically used to pinpoint the havoc which worry can effect in any given individual on any given day. Undoubtedly, it also includes the sin and failure into which worry and the temptations that are associated with worry bring us to defeat and despair. What the Savior was emphasizing is that the conflicts of any given day are enough without anticipating the mischief of tomorrow. And this curse of worry affects the whole man. It devastates the holistic configuration of man. It affects his spirit, it affects his soul, and it affects his body. Look at that just for a moment. We're talking about the curse of anxiety. Worry defeats our spiritual life. Put that down. Worry defeats our spiritual life. Oh, you of little faith. Now, this statement is found five times in the Gospels, and we can't deal with them. There's no time to deal with them. But let me give you one or two instances. Do you remember that the disciples were not so unbelieving as lacking in faith and doubting? You remember the one we were talking about the other day when the Lord Jesus was fast asleep in that little boat and all these seasoned seamen got petrified because a storm blew up and the boat was being thrown around like a cork on the waves. And they roused him and said, Master, don't you care? Don't you care that we perish? And he just got up and calmed the waves and the winds but turned to them and said, why are ye so fearful? Oh, you of little faith. I'm in the boat. I'm in the boat. 
I'm in the boat. Why don't you trust me? Then there was the occasion, you remember, when Peter began to sink. After all, the Lord Jesus had bidden him come to him. And Peter steps out to the boat onto the waves and actually walks on the waves. I believe in the inerrant word of God. He walked on the waves. But his eyes were on Jesus. But typical of Peter, he turns his eyes away from Jesus and says, Boys, you know, I'm terrific. I'm walking on water. And immediately began to sink. And as he's going down, third time, he said, Lord, save me. Jesus just grabbed him, pulled him up and said, Oh, you little faith. Why did you doubt? Why did you decentralize your faith from me? Then there was the occasion, you remember, when the disciples ran out of food. Out of food. They had seen the Lord physically, visibly, break bread and fish and feed the multitude with loads of food left over. Now they're panicking. Now they're panicking. And they say, Lord, we've got nothing to eat. And Jesus had to say to them once more, Oh, you of little faith. Why do you reason among yourselves because you brought no bread? In each instance, faithlessness was equated with worry and anxiety. Worry always defeats the spiritual life. I remember preaching Brother Beamer in a little village town in the Midlands of England. And uh, I spent the night with some lovely friends. And... Uh, I came into the living room early in the morning for breakfast and stood there just by the fireplace and they had a little, a little sort of card hanging over the mantelpiece with a provoking, penetrating statement. Why pray when you can worry? You know, I've never forgotten that. Why pray when you can worry? Worry defeats the spiritual life. Worry distracts the mental life. Do not worry, said the Lord Jesus. Five times over in this phrase, this very reading we've had this morning, occurs this matter of anxiety or over-anxiety. Now, most of you who are students of the Word of God know that one of the outstanding works on the Sermon on the Mount were the sermons preached by the late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the dearest friends I've ever known, and he points out that in the original, it is a word used to indicate something which divides, separates, or distracts us. And he goes on to say, if you turn to Luke 12, 29, which is the corresponding passage to this, you'll find that the expression used there means, neither be of doubtful mind. It is a mind, he says, which is divided into sections and compartments, not functioning together. And I remember a famous Bible expositor preaching on this text many years ago, and he tried to describe the, the, the picture behind the Greek term, over-anxiety, if you like. And he said, it's the picture of a bulldog terrier tearing apart a rag doll. Can you see that? Can you see that? There's that rag doll, and this is a bull, bulldog terrier absolutely tearing it apart. He says, that's the state of mind of a neurotic person suffering from anxiety. 
It's instructive to observe that when Paul talks about mental well-being, he associates it with a pervading peace of God. Be not anxious for anything, he says. But in everything by prayer and supplication, make your requests known unto God. And the peace of God. Remember what I said about peace? Peace is not stagnation. Peace is action without friction. At the very root of the word peace is the idea of action. Jowett has a whole essay on it, the meaning etymologically of that word peace. It's, it's an action word, and the peace of God, the peace of God shall be just like a sentinel guarding your mind and heart through Christ Jesus. Yes, defeats your spiritual life. It devastates your mental life, distracts your mental life. But more than that, listen, friends, it destroys your physical life. Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? As we've seen, the meaning of this verse has more to do with the prolonging of life than the extending of our bodily height. The fact is that instead of prolonging life, Worry shortens life. It's actively injurious. We're told that the two typical diseases of modern life, and I had this as of last week in Memphis from one of the leading specialists of the Baptist Hospital, Memorial Hospital, downtown Memphis, are the stomach ulcer and all the associated problems and heart failure, and heart failure, the heart attack. In many cases, heart attacks and all those stomach ailments are due to worry. And somebody has said that it's a medical fact that he who laughs loudest lasts longest. The worry which wears out the mind, wears out the body along with it. In spite of this, however, we still continue to sin against our spirits, our souls, and our bodies, and therefore against our Lord. We're defeated, we're distracted, and we're destroyed by worry, and we still worry. This exposure to the curse of worry should lead us now in these closing moments to look at the third law. And this is all positive, all the way. Law number three, utilize the cure to worry. Utilize the cure to worry, or if you like, to anxiety. Utilize the cure to anxiety. And these precious words, oh, I wish we could spend a whole week on them. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Verse 33. Jesus introduced these climatic words by noting that the Gentiles pursue, seek, pursue the very things that create worry. They pursue them. They pursue them. He then emphasized the same Greek word when he declared, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And for you and me, this involves three tremendously important things that are consistent with the whole thrust of our theme this week. Number one, we must affirm the rulership of God 
in our lives. We must affirm the rulership of God in our lives. Seek first the kingdom of God. Now, we've learned already in these studies that the kingdom of God is not food or drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's Romans 14, 17. And there is no such thing as a kingdom without a king. And there is no such king without being a ruler. And there is no such thing as a ruler without laws. And there are no such laws but subjects who obey those laws. And the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Or if you prefer, holiness, harmony, and happiness in Christ. Such a kingdom or reign cannot be established in our lives until God in Christ is sovereign of our lives. Lord of every thought and action, Lord to send and Lord to stay, Lord in writing, speaking, giving, Lord of all things to obey, undisputed Lord of our lives. Has he been affirmed as ruler in your life? When God is enthroned, self is dethroned. When faith is exalted, fear is excluded. When grace has dominion, sin, with all its worries, has no more dominion over us. Question, are you prepared to give God first place in your life? You readers of mystery biography will be familiar with the name of Bishop Castles, one of the Cambridge Seven, that famous revival that took place at the University of Cambridge and out of it came a number of giants, one of them Bishop Castles, one of the great seven who are the spirits behind this moving of the Spirit of God. And you remember he went as a missionary to China. And so he packed up all his trunks, tied them all together, and arrived at the docks. And the inspector came around and examined his luggage. And on every piece of luggage he had two words, two words, God first, God first, God first. God first, God first. All the luggage, just the two words, pasted on, God first. No wonder he became one of the giants in Africa. Do you know why? Because before that was true on his luggage, it was true in his life. God first. Secondly, look at it quickly. We must apply the requirements of God in our lives. We must apply the requirements of God in our lives. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, listen carefully, and his righteousness. Now, for those of you who are making notes, that word righteousness is a reference to chapter 5. Remember, we are using the whole context of the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 5, verses 17 through 20 where Jesus defined the practical requirements of our God for kingdom people. And Professor Tasker points out that by righteousness, Christ meant the conduct that God requires, which is only possible, listen carefully, when the law is an inspiration rather than the imposition that the scribes tended to make it. I love that. I love that. And when does the law of God become an inspiration instead of an imposition? I'll tell you. When what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as a sin offering, did what? Did what? 
produced in us the righteousness of the law. As we walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. It's the outliving of the indwelling Christ, supreme in our lives, on the basis of obedience to the scripture and dependence on the spirit. And beloved, I want to say what I've said again and again and will say again and again and again. There is no substitute for daily obedience to the word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. That little chorus is absolutely theologically true. Trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Reading the word of God in my quiet time every day through the week, studying it and taking those commands of our Lord Jesus absolutely on his terms and seeking to flesh them out in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's beating the requirements. That's beating the requirements. Now, of course, I did know John Wesley personally. But it's recorded of John Wesley that he never worried. In spite of the fact that he had marital, ministerial, and financial problems, God so reigned in his life, and I'm quoting now, that his entire pursuit was righteousness both in his life and his work, and it's understood that he never worried. In a similar way, we would cease to worry if we truly submitted ourselves to the reign of God and committed ourselves to the requirements of God. And finally and briefly, third tremendous statement here. We must accept gratefully, gladly, sincerely the resourcefulness of God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What's the rest of the verse? And all these things shall be added unto you. No, you're wrong. And some of these things shall be added unto you. Is that right? No way. You're right the first time. And all these things shall be added unto you. What a cure for worry. If we would experience in our lives what Jesus says here. Jesus tells us here that if God's rulership and requirements are affirmed and applied in our lives, then the temporal mercies will surely follow. He says, in effect, that if we pray first, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, then we have a right to say, give us this day our daily bread. Oregon, one of the church fathers, attributed to the Savior a saying that seems to be a variant of verse 33. Let me read it to you. It reads, ask for great things and the little things will be added to you. And ask for heavenly things and the earthly things will be given you as well. Our responsibility is to accept what God makes available he who cares for the birds and flowers knows every need and is waiting to bless us above all that we could ever ask or think. God is no man's debtor. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. If we honor him, he'll honor us. Lord God, have you rulership of my life? Lord God, am I obeying your divine requirements through the scriptures by the Spirit? Lord God, Am I believing you to be the God of prevision and provision? All the resourcefulness of heaven and earth are yours. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Can I trust you for that? Here then are the freedom laws 
for life's anxiety were to analyze the cause, were to recognize the curse, and were to utilize the cure for anxiety. But no words are more all-embracing than the closing words of this majestic statement of our Savior. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. May I sum it up for you this way? These little words came to me. Seek the kingdom first of all. Heed the master's urgent call. Then pursue God's righteousness and a life of holiness. In return, you will receive what the mind can scarce conceive. Mercy's new for every day. And no worry. Come what may. Amen? You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and one of a five-part series of messages Stephen Olford presented at Moody Keswick Bible Conference 1984. Stephen Olford was a pastor, author, international evangelist, and a pioneer Christian broadcaster with his TV program, Encounter. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.